again for tuning in to the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast. I'm your host, Vic Sage, and for this episode, we are going to be discussing a classic arcade title that I happened to mention in passing on last week's Starcade episode. Today, we will be tackling the action dungeon crawler that was 1981's Venture by Exidy. Venture was a rather challenging arcade game that I only had the pleasure of playing a single time in my youth. Not at any of the arcades I normally talk about on the show, but at a local bowling alley. This is the same place that I've mentioned on the podcast before. The bowling alley where I first played the likes of Atari's Fire Truck, Cinematronic Space War, and others. By the time I encountered Venture, though, instead of a handful of arcade games being situated in the middle of the place, generally next to a support beam, as the building in itself was two stories, my father and myself, after being away from the bowling alley for a couple of years, found that it had built itself a room devoted to arcade games, pinball and pool tables. It was a totally dark and smoke-filled area, with quite a few college kids and adults, and plenty of pink neon along the darkened windows. The arcade games were left pretty much unattended, as all of the action was at the pool tables. Besides Venture, this spot is also the only time back in the day that I saw or played Cinematronic's Jack the Giant Killer from 1982. Now that I'm sharing this memory, the more that I think about it all, I bet this room was designed to act as more of a lounge than an arcade, as they did also have a bar set up in the back corner. While it is a fact I did not do so well when playing Venture, at least it was a better game than when I attempted Jack the Giant Killer. That was just downright embarrassing how quickly I lost my quarter. I would not get the opportunity to play Venture again until it was rolled into the arcade by Shay Mathis, the owner and manager of the Arcadia Retrocade, of course. As I recall it, and my memory might be getting a little faulty in my old age, Shay was able to obtain Venture in the second year that the arcade was open. It quickly found a spot in the adventure row of games, with titles like Magic Sword, Rastan, Golden Axe, and the like. Which is understandable, as Venture does have that RPG dungeon crawl vibe to it. Sadly, the machine had some issues, and it eventually went down, and was removed from the lineup by Shea, and stored in what we now call the second wing of the arcade, for I believe around six years. There are times, of course, that a game cannot be resuscitated, or the parts aren't readily available. I'm not 100% positive, of course, but I think it was decided that John Munkus, who was the chief technician at that time, I believe it was felt his time would be better served on focusing on a few of the more popular games in the arcade. That difficulty I talked about with Venture seemed to keep people away, especially the younger players who visited the arcade. At the very least, I was able to get in quite a few nights worth of gameplay, and I definitely did much better than when I played it as a kid. Venture was released to the wilds of the arcades by Exidy back in 1981. Depending on where you look, I have found two different sources saying it was released in June of that year. 
I might be wrong, but I think that Venture is the first Exidy title we've properly tackled on the podcast. Exidy was co-founded by H.R. Pete Kaufman and Samuel Hawes in 1973. The previous year, Kaufman was acting as the marketing executive for Ramtech, a company that also had its toe in the arcade game manufacturing pool, having been founded back in 1971. A few of the games produced by Ramtech include Barricade, Clean Sweep, Sea Battle, and Star Cruiser. Kaufman and some of his fellow employees at Ramtech happened to be hanging out in Andy Capp's Tavern in Sunnyvale, California in August of 1972 when a prototype game was set up. It was called Pong. Kaufman was impressed by the game, and I'm sure how it was accepted by the patrons, and decided that arcade games had a future. So it was that in 73, he left Ramtech, and along with Samuel Hawes, who was working for Ampex, they co-founded Exidy, which is a blending of the words excellence in dynamics. Reading online, it seems they felt some pressure from trying to compete with Atari, though as from a 1983 issue of Electronic Games. In an interview with Rick Pearl, executive for Exidy, Lila Zinter, said, quote, Exidy is an innovator, but we have a hard time breaking through the politics of getting a game a fair chance, end quote. It appears that, starting in 1975, Exidy was releasing arcade titles. The first two were licensed from Ramtech, in fact. Those were TV Pinball and Table Foosballer. The company found itself in the middle of some controversy when they released Death Race on April 1st of 1976, which I found out was based on Destruction Derby, a game from Ramtech that was licensed out to Chicago Coin, who released it as Demolition Derby. It was Howell Ivy who worked on Death Race, joining Exidy from Ramtech of all places. He modified the game to include areas at the side of the screen where the gremlins that were wandering the screen could find safety from the players and their vehicles attempting to run them over. Another change that Ivy made from Destruction Derby was the enemy vehicles were made to look like, well, humanoid creatures. An electronic scream can be heard when the player runs over a gremlin. Where the figure was once standing, a tombstone takes its place. And while I always assumed that Exidy was tying the game into 1975's cult film Death Race 2000, the company apparently always denied that, stating that it was artist Michael Cooper Hart as well as marketing that came up with the Death Race title. Now, I'm going to cut any additional history of Death Race there. I'm going to save it for a future episode. But the thing is, Howl Ivy also designed and programmed Venture. Ivy, as I learned from reading a 2014 interview with Retro Gamer magazine, after graduating from a technical school, Ivy joined the military, the Air Force, where he would spend the next seven and a half years. At the base he was stationed, which was a satellite test facility located in Sunnyvale, California, he was able to play Nutting and Associates Computer Space. And while enjoying it, he felt he could also accomplish designing and programming a video game. When addressing the statement of how challenging it was in 1972 to make a video game, Ivy replied, quote, Oh yeah, it was all done using hard logic. And gates, or gates, counters. Microprocessors didn't come in until much later. In the military, I had worked with CCTV systems, and my specialty in the Air Force was telemetry systems. I had a really good understanding of how to move information from one place to another, using both analog and digital technologies, and I was familiar with how TV screens worked, so it was obvious to me how to put an image on the screen and move it around." End quote. 
I will, as always, be sure to include a link to that article. It's not a full interview, but it does go into great detail of the early days of working at Ramtech, which is where he sold that game he decided to create. A version of Pong, in fact. Of course, remember this is 72, so Pong was definitely a big thing. It appears that Ramtech never produced the game, but they did pay Ivy $2,000 for it. Howell was still in the Air Force at this point, but he began working at Ramtech on Clean Sweep, which was released in 1974. The game was a little like Breakout, with a large paddle at the bottom of the screen controlled by the player. In the game, a ball would bounce off the paddle, and the goal was to clear the screen of all the dots by hitting them with said ball. I said it's a little like Breakout, but that game was released in 1976, right? So Clean Sweep might have inspired that classic Atari arcade game. At the very least, I can tell you that thanks to that interview with Retro Gamer Magazine, Ivy has mentioned that Venture was actually started by another person at Exidy before he took over. He points out that the genesis of the game was thanks to TSR's Dungeons & Dragons, but they came up with the title Venture as they couldn't use Adventure. I'm sure that had a little something to do with Warren Robinett's 1980 Atari VCS masterpiece. Howell would go on to work on such titles as Mousetrap, Victory, Pepper 2, and Crossbow for Exidy, to name a few. Now, Venture tasks one to two players, taking alternate turns, in guiding their brave hero into the depths of a dungeon dark and dank, where within they will encounter chambers offering both treasures and devious monsters, as well as diabolical traps. As those of you who have seen a Venture arcade cabinet before, you know that the side art depicts a valiant struggle between our hero, who looks a little like a barbarian, holding a scimitar in one hand with a quiver of arrows slung across one shoulder. This valiant champion has been wrapped in the coils of three vicious-looking giant snakes who have burst forth from behind a chamber door to attack the hero on a stairwell. This valiant champion is none other than... Winky? <laughs> yeah, the players control the hero known as Winky, represented as a big red smiley face holding a bow with an arrow knocked and ready to fire. Interestingly enough, there are at least four different flyers that were released by Exidy for Venture, with the first one showing Winky as an almost comical halfling character, definitely in over his head by entering the dungeons. The second version shows Winky to be more heroic, with a puffed-up chest and resting a boot on the corpse of an enemy centipede called Skippy, and which more than a little looks like the character shown on the side art for Atari's centipede arcade cabinets. He also appears to be a humanoid character, his head resembling the character in the game. The third flyer that Exidy released is pretty interesting, because while it focuses on the arcade cabinet itself, it also provides the Venture Legend, which reads, Recovered by Winky in Dungeon Archives circa 1581. In a dungeon of old there are treasures to gain, in chambers midst creatures of doom. Pass quickly through halls where green monsters do reign. Your arrows pierce only in rooms. Beware of the creatures who fall to your bow. They lie with their powers intact. The moving walls fall at the strike of your blow. Quick, capture the prize, then retract. In chamber rooms dark, make good haste for the prize. To linger invites foes too strong. So shoot as you might, you can't conquer their size. And you won't be a winkin' for long. 
I know I don't normally point out things about the Flyers in the games for the show, but I thought it was kind of interesting how the character you control seemed to visually change with each Flyer. Plus, that last one was in rhyme, which was definitely kind of different. Off the top of my head, besides that awesome arcade poster for Joust, I can't remember another game doing this. Winky is controlled by an 8-way joystick, allowing movement to the right and left and up and down as well as diagonally in those directions. In addition, the joystick was designed that if the player wants to keep Winky stationary, they can just tap the joystick in the desired direction they want to fire their bow. Loosing an arrow is accomplished by tapping the fire button. This ability to aim and not move is useful inside the chambers of the dungeon, when you might not be able to move around the room safely due to enemies or a trap, and you just want to fire arrows at your foes from a safe distance. Although, only one arrow can be on screen at any given time. Thankfully, it moves pretty fast. If the arrow hits a wall of a chamber, you will be ready to fire another arrow. The same holds true, of course, if you strike an enemy with your shot. The foe, crying out in pain, dies, and you immediately are ready to fire another arrow. There is, however, a double serving of bad news in regard to the slain foes and the arrows you can let loose. When you kill an enemy, as that flyer makes mention, they are still deadly. They will slowly dissolve, but even if a couple of dots remain before they vanished, you will lose a life if Winky makes contact with the body. Perhaps even worse is the fact that if you accidentally shoot another arrow into the body, the death animation for the enemy begins anew. Even if they were just about to disappear, their body returns and begins to dissolve once again. I'm not really sure if this is a glitch or something that Ivy intended to make the game even more difficult. The main goal of Venture is for the players to aid Winky in collecting all four treasures in each of the four chambers of the current dungeon floor he's on. At the beginning of every floor, the player is presented with an overhead view. Winky is a small red dot. You must immediately begin heading to one of the open doors in the four chambers, because the dungeon is patrolled by hall monsters. These massive squid-like enemies, especially in later dungeon floors, are incredibly fast, and your arrows will not affect them in the least. Once a player guides Winky into an open chamber door, the screen kind of zooms in, showing you the monsters and the treasure they are guarding. Although in later chambers, the enemies might not show up until after you've grabbed the treasure. You have to keep on your toes to avoid being surrounded. Once a player collects one of the four treasures, they then have to help Winky get out of the room. You see, you don't necessarily have to kill the foes in each chamber, although it's going to be kind of hard not to take out a few of them to reach it. Once Winky has secured the treasure by moving over it, the player needs to head for one of those two open doors. Here's the thing though, you don't have all day to do this. If you're taking too long, a hall monster enters the chamber and heads for Winky. Remember, your arrows are useless against these monsters. Now, once a player has obtained a chamber's treasure and exited the room, it will be locked off, shown in that overhead dungeon floor view as being filled in with a solid color. If you think time is against you in the chamber, the best bet might be to exit the room and re-enter it. This will resurrect any of the enemies you might have slain, but it gives you a fresh start. You need to be careful though. If a hall monster was hot on your trail when you entered the chamber, if you leave by the same way you came in, they'll be there to grab you when you exit. Speaking of time, you have about 9 minutes to clear a dungeon floor. There's a timer at the top of the screen, just below the notification of what dungeon floor you are currently on. If the timer reaches zero, 
well, nothing happens beyond the fact you lose your score multiplier for getting all four treasures safely out of the chambers on a dungeon level. So if you have eight minutes left after completing the level, your score earned would be multiplied by eight, and so on just before you're treated to a little cutscene with Winky stomping down the steps to the next dungeon floor. Of course, if a hall monster or enemy within a chamber comes into contact with Winky, the player sees Winky's smiling face, if they are in a chamber, change to a frown and they lose one of their extra lives. I have to point out that Howl Ivy programmed a kind of visually interesting cutscene when an extra life is lost. A screen pops up, showing all of the treasures you've collected so far, with Winky rushing to snatch up a new bow from the upper left-hand side of the screen, where your extra lives are displayed, and then the smiling character descends down the steps into the dungeon once again. Now, I will go into the dungeon floor designs and individual chambers next, but I feel I should point out that while Winky is a little quicker at first, in those later dungeon floors, the hall monsters really can build up speed. They may not be able to turn and move diagonally like Winky, but there's generally so many of them moving in different directions at the same time that it won't help matters. In dungeon floor one, which is repeated for floors four and seven, the four chambers or rooms you encounter are the Goblin Room, Wall Trap Room, Snake Room, and Skeleton Room. Whichever chamber you want to enter is up to the player. You have free reign throughout the dungeon. Although, depending on how fast the hall monsters are moving, that might determine which chamber you duck into first. The Goblin Room has three goblins that are hopping about like they've been locked in that chamber with nothing to eat but sugar. I think the difficulty adventure is kind of legendary, and for good reason. Just taking a step forward in the goblin room, and you can get pounced on by one of the enemies if you aren't careful. Worse yet, the foes in adventure have an almost unnatural ability of stepping out of harm's way of Winky's arrows at the last second, so hitting a bad guy can be a little frustrating. Although, I have read online, it helps if you are firing diagonally at them. And, with my playthroughs on the Internet Archive Arcade, that theory seems to be proven true. A bowl of gold coins is the treasure on the first dungeon floor, with a harp for the fourth and a halberd for the seventh. In the top left corner is the wall trap room, which, while it doesn't feature any monsters, the player will have to guide Winky in between four purple moving walls to reach the treasure in the middle of the room. The walls won't kill you if you touch them, but if you get caught between the top and bottom walls, you will be crushed against the upper and lower walls of the chamber. Although, the player's arrows can knock out chunks of the moving walls, so you can carve yourself a path to the treasure if need be. Although, don't take too long. Remember, the hall monster can appear, and it's a little harder to escape with the walls in the way. A shiny diamond is the prize on the first dungeon floor, with a diamond ring for the fourth and what might be a giant coin for the seventh. The snake room is in the upper right-hand side, and these green beasties are quick to dodge your shots and slide across the floor of the chamber. In addition, there is a threat of killing the snakes and not being able to make it through the rather narrow area of the chamber to reach the treasure before the hall monster appears. For the first dungeon floor, you will receive a nice juicy apple. Maybe it's the Apple of Eden. On the fourth floor, you will find a martini. This is one strange fantasy kingdom. And an hourglass awaits you on the seventh dungeon floor. The skeleton room is located in the bottom left corner. It might be a bit larger than the goblin room, 
but the enemies act the same. The location of the open doors can prove problematic if you're running out of time and find yourself chased by a hall monster. The treasure chest is at the bottom of the chamber, on the first dungeon floor. A medieval knight's banner is the treasure for the fourth floor, and then a scimitar on the seventh. With the second dungeon floor, the players will encounter the spider chamber, dragon chamber, etten chamber, and the troll chamber. This setup is repeated on the fifth and eighth dungeon floors. Players will begin at the bottom of the dungeon floor, in the overhead view of course, and you have to book it to reach one of the chambers and be careful not to get nabbed by a hall monster, as they have already sped up quite a bit. The easiest room to reach on this dungeon level is the spider room. Once you enter the chamber, Winky is confronted by three red spiders who are crawling around the room. In the middle of this is the treasure, which for dungeon level 2 is a ballerina figurine, then a doll for the 5th dungeon floor, and finally a rose for the 8th. The spiders are pretty fast, but the real threat is when you have collected the treasure. The red spiders immediately vanish, and two yellow spiders show up, one next to each of the exits, but they waste no time in trying to rush Winky. Just above the spider room is a triangle-shaped chamber. This is the dragon room. Players will come face to snout with four rampaging dragons. While the hull monsters cannot move diagonally, all monsters within the chambers can. Players do not have a lot of elbow room in this chamber, but at least the treasure is located at the top of the room. If you are lucky, you can just dash in and grab it and get out. A crown is the treasure for dungeon floor 2, with a scepter on 5, and then a morning star for the 8th. To the upper left is the Etten room. This chamber is Y-shaped, with the treasure located in the bottom of the room. Furthermore, there are no enemies to slow you down, until you pick up the treasure. Then four red-hued Ettens, angry two-headed giants, who tend to block the paths back to the exit doors, make an appearance, sometimes forcing you to look on in horror as you wait for the brutes to vanish after striking them with an arrow. All the while, a hall monster has appeared behind you. In the second dungeon floor, the treasure is a chess rook piece, with twin rapiers for the fifth floor and a violin on the eighth. The upper right chamber is the troll chamber. This is an odd one, as when Winky enters the room, the treasure is located in the upper right corner, protected by two rampaging and quick-moving trolls that are all cordoned off by walls. You can't get to them. After a few moments, the walls vanish and the trolls will start rushing you. Perhaps the biggest concern with this particular room is time. The clock is ticking once you enter the room, of course, and you already lose precious seconds waiting for the walls to disappear. So, the hall monster is a very real danger in the troll chamber. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention, but this chamber only has one door. A jug of liquor is the treasure a player will collect on the second dungeon floor, with a torch on five and then a candle on eight. Alright, Dungeon Floor 3 pits players against the Ghost Chamber, Bat Chamber, Devil Chamber, and last but not least, the Cyclops Chamber. This chamber makeup is repeated on Dungeon Floors 6 and 9, as well as every single Dungeon Floor after clearing 9. The Ghost Room is found in the lower left-hand corner of the dungeon, and yet again, with the speed of the Hall Monsters, it is the easier one to tackle first. When Winky enters, he finds three ghosts floating around the room. The treasure is in a small section of the room on the far left, making it a chore to get to if you nail the enemies in front of it. The ghosts are pretty quick and have no problem with trying to ram into you. On Dungeon Floor 3, what looks like a magic lamp awaits the player, with a shepherd's staff on the 6th floor and a big star on the 9th, and forevermore after that. 
The bat room resembles a large plus sign, but only has one entrance slash exit in the upper left side. Three bats guard the treasure at the bottom of the chamber. The good news is, I guess, these enemies don't appear to hone in on Winky. They just fly around and bounce into things. That doesn't mean they aren't hard to hit with the player's arrows, however. On dungeon level 3, a trophy is the treasure to grab. On the 6th, there's a heart with an arrow through it. And then on 9, and forevermore after that, is a scroll. At the top of a dungeon is a chamber that resembles a key. This is the Devil Room. When a player is entered through one of the two doors, they will see the treasure located at the far left side of the room. No enemies, though. Naturally, as soon as you are a couple of steps from the treasure, the devils pop up, and with their pitchforks in one hand, they rapidly move about the chamber. As the treasure is located in what I would call the teeth area of the key-shaped room, if you kill one of the demons at the entrance to the small area, you're going to be stuck until it dissolves. Appropriately enough, a key is the treasure available on the third dungeon level, the sword and the stone on the sixth, and what appears to be either a vial of poison or possibly a monster's head on a pedestal as a trophy for the ninth and every level afterwards. In the lower right-hand side is the Cyclops Chamber, another room with only one entrance and exit. The three Cyclops within the chamber frantically move about, making them extremely hard to shoot without players taking the risk of getting up close and personal. Having said that though, one of the Cyclops happens to be a teleporter, and you will have no clue which one it is until you fire at it. It vanishes for a couple of seconds before reappearing. The treasure, which is located at the bottom of the sort of circular chamber on dungeon level 3, is a shield with a lightning bolt on 6, and then what I believe is a stack of arrows on 9 in every single dungeon level after that. It probably goes without saying that after dungeon level 9, even though the layouts of the chambers and enemies remain the same, the bad guys speed up to frightening levels. If you managed to nab the high score, depending on how well you did, after entering your initials, if you got the first place spot, you are known as a wizard. A warrior is your title for second place, sorcerer for third, fighter for fourth, and winky for fifth place. Venture was ported to the ColecoVision in 1982. In fact, it was developed by ColecoVision as well, which is probably why it's such a faithful port. There are a few changes, such as the enemies in the chamber don't slowly dissolve, but just vanish after a few seconds have passed. The Atari 2600 version was also developed by Coleco, and its port, as you can imagine, suffers when compared to the likes of the ColecoVision. Although, it isn't that bad of a port. Only the first two dungeon floor levels are included, but it's pretty fun. I never had the opportunity to play Venture on the 2600 until Shay grabbed the arcade copy. Although, I am extremely sad to say it was one of the first cartridges we lost to theft. The Intellivision system also received a port of Venture. I will admit, I wasn't aware of this until I started recording this episode. Like the ColecoVision, it does feature all three dungeon levels, and I would assume that with the Intellivision controller dial, it would be a little easier to get around those enemies. The Intellivision port was either released in 82 or the following year. Surprisingly, Venture wasn't officially ported to the Commodore 64 or Atari home computers. And now, these messages. What does a man of adventure do between adventures? I play Exidy's Venture, the video cartridge that plays just like the arcade game. 
It sharpens my reflexes. Armed only with an arrow, you hunt for treasure, gold, diamonds. And it's not easy because you have to get past deadly monsters, goblins, snakes. And dragons. Play Venture on your ColecoVision, Atari VCS, or Intellivision video game system. I hate dragons. Introducing the ColecoVision Super Action Controller Set. With it, your vision expands. Now play all ColecoVision games and new Super Action Baseball, Boxing, or Football. Plot strategies in advance, offense or defense. It's the first controller to move four individual players at once. And you get Super Action Baseball with multi-screens as a bonus. Expand your vision with the Super Action Controller Set. Because your vision is our vision. ColecoVision. Playing on ColecoVision in 1984. War Games, the blockbuster movie, becomes more than just a game on ColecoVision. Tarzan, the original swinger, is still the king of the jungle on ColecoVision. Frontline, the ultimate invasion on a constantly changing battlefield on ColecoVision. Congo Bongo, the hilarious jungle adventure on ColecoVision. Star Trek, fight aliens at the speed of light on ColecoVision. The best game in town keeps getting better. Friends, I'm afraid that Earl Green and Gary Burton were not able to join us for this episode. I hope you will send thoughts and well wishes to Earl as he sadly lost a four-legged member of his family this week. Earl, I hope you've been taking it easy, my friend, and maybe playing some Dune 2000. Now, Gary Burton wasn't able to appear on this show because he's been going non-stop along with Adam and William, as well as Shay Mathis, of course, as they are putting the finishing touches on getting the arcade ready to open. I could be wrong on this, but I think they've been spending 16 hours a day at the arcade, seven days a week, just arranging the arcade cabinets where they need to go for the first and second wing, doing an overall facelift to the arcade itself. It will be exciting to see how it will look when it's time for them to open the doors again. I'm not going to genius it, but I'm hearing it might be quicker than you think. And friends, I think that about wraps up our episode. As always, I want to thank you again for taking the time to listen to the show. I really do appreciate your support and hope that you're enjoying the second season of the podcast. I understand I'm no expert on these games, just a fan of classic arcade and home console titles and enjoy talking about them. The Diary of an Arcade Employee is currently available on iTunes. I'm working on rebuilding the podcast library, a result of switching from the Retroist site to the pop culture Retrorama one. You can check out daily posts by visiting www.popcultureretrorama.com. The Diary of an Arcade Employee is now available on Google Podcasts as well as Spotify and Stitcher. No matter how you listen to the show, if you have a moment and enjoy the podcast, why not give us a rating and a review to help us find new listeners? You can find out more about the Arcadia Retrocade by visiting Facebook. Or, for daily posts, you can check out the Diary of an Arcade Employee Podcast Facebook page. I share all manner of vintage arcade and home console fun multiple times a day. And just recently, on Sundays at 9pm Central Time, we've been hosting a Diary Watch Party sharing old episodes of Starcade and various video game cartoons. We hope you can join us this week. Earl Green is a frequent contributor to the pop culture Retrorama site, as well as being a very good friend to the arcade, having donated most of his collection of home console games and more. Earl also happens to head up thelogbook.com, one of the longest-running websites for literally all things pop culture-related. 
Gary Burton, frequently shares photos from the work he's doing at the arcade, sharing them on the Diary of an Arcade Employee Facebook page. In addition, from time to time, he contributes articles to the Pop Culture Retrorama site. If you have any feedback or comments about the podcast, you can always reach me on Facebook or throw me an email at fixsagepopculture at gmail.com. You can also often find me posting videos of the arcade, when it wasn't closed due to COVID-19, on my Instagram account, which is simply fixsage underscore. I, of course, want to thank the Retroist. For over a decade, the Retroist has provided a spot on the internet where fans of all things retro could visit and enjoy the best retro-related articles and podcasts. I certainly wouldn't have my own site or multiple podcasts without the Retroist support. Have a token on me as you listen to a clip of the subject for next week's show. This has been a Pop Culture Retrorama podcast. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. The Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by Exidy, Atari, Coleco, or any of the individuals and businesses that have been mentioned in the show. All music and sound clips from the mentioned video games, TV programs, and ads are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review, criticism, and commentary only, and are not intended to infringe. The wounds received in battle bestow honor. Do not take it away. End of line.